Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you are uh, newer to our church, my name is Dave, and uh, it's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here. If you look around the room... You're going to notice that we're a little light in numbers today. We have two of our, so every other year in our church, our small groups go out on their own retreats. And we have two groups out on retreat this weekend. And the majority of our youth group is away in Tuba City, Arizona on a mission trip. So about a third of our congregation is somewhere else this morning. That's why you have a lot more elbow room today. And in light of how few people are actually here, I'm going to ask that we huddle together. If you find that you're sitting completely by yourself, maybe I might suggest sidle over subtly, be at least a couple chairs away from another human being. Uh, I think that would make us feel a little more like we're actually in this together. Well, I'm preaching my way through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been a fascinating journey for me already as a preacher Because I am now looking at the sermon. I don't get to pick my preaching schedule. I have to preach what Jesus preached in the order Jesus preached it. And with the preacher's eye, I'm looking at the choices he makes and where to go next. And I'm confounded and really surprised at some of the preaching choices Jesus makes. I'm a little shocked that right out of the gates, he's talking about murder and lust and adultery and this morning divorce and remarriage. He doesn't wait till the the third act to bring out the big guns. He takes a sledgehammer out right at the start and starts swinging. And I have to admit to you, um, last week was a very difficult message to work through and prepare. This morning has also been that way. And uh, so I just want to start off by acknowledging that the topic of divorce is a very difficult topic. It's a hard thing to go through. It's a very hard thing to watch. It's a very hard thing to talk about. And what makes it hard is that it's not just a topic, but it touches real people we love. It touches us. Just about everyone in this room in some form or another has been touched by divorce. Whether it's in your family or whether it's somebody you care about very deeply, divorce is never an easy thing. It's especially hard because divorce is a sad end to what was likely a sad story that we watched tear apart the hearts of people we care about. And even those people who frame their divorce as freedom, as an escape from a hard thing, will admit to you in the quiet of the night that even though there is a kind of freedom in divorce, it has left their hearts just devastated. It scooped out something very important from the inside of who they are and left them feeling empty. And worn out. I think most people are really awkward around those who are divorced. It's not an easy thing to be around someone I care about who used to be part of a unit, a couple, and now there's just one or the other. And often, especially in the context of a church or a club or whatever part of community you have, when two people divorce, usually you don't see both stick around for very long. Either one or the other departs. And we're left dealing with half of something that we used to think about as a complete unit. And that awkwardness brings about some really clumsy responses to divorce, doesn't it? I mean, I think some people just ignore it. They make the choice to ignore it altogether like it didn't even happen. And here's a person whose life was just torn apart by a life-shaping event. And we're like, so are you going to get the new iPhone when it comes out? And the person's just going, Really? That's what you want to talk to me about today is the new iPhone coming out. Do you realize what I've just been through, how much it still is affecting who I am? Another very um, awkward thing that happens is we say things that are really trite and not very helpful. There's There's a dozen really dumb things you could say to someone who's gone through a divorce that adds pain to what they're going through, makes both of you feel really awkward, and it's like, it would have been better if maybe I just didn't say anything. And part of that discomfort is we don't know what to say. Divorce throws us for a loop. We're all very uncomfortable with how to respond to something like this. Some people just avoid the person altogether. They say, it's easier if I just don't 
be around you anymore because I don't know how to be. I don't know what to say. And sometimes we avoid them because we feel disdain or judgment over the choice they've made. Or because we're heartbroken. We don't know how to process our own grief and sadness. And so for us, we make the easier choice, the path of less resistance, and we just avoid the person altogether and think that that's going to take care of it. In fact, divorce is such a hard word, we often don't even say it. There are very few words in the English language that are so bad, we don't even refer to them, we give them an initial, we say the F word or the N word, and we refer to divorce as what? The D word. That almost by uttering the word itself, power is unleashed somehow. And so we don't even say, we euphemize, we say the D word. I, I wouldn't even go there and verbalize the word. It's an uncomfortable subject for everyone. But Jesus tackled it head on. And he did it just out the gates. Just on the other side of an introduction to this great sermon that he preached. And so because Jesus tackled it head on, we're going to tackle it head on. And it's my hope that the way we handle this very important subject, this very important text of Scripture, will honor God and will help us as a church family get right with God and on the same page on this important subject. This week, as I thought about this subject of divorce, I began thinking a lot about why marriages fall apart to begin with. See, one of the things that's been my privilege over the last 21 years here as, as a pastor is I've gotten to stand in the front row seats at over 50 weddings. I have the best seat in the house. While you guys look at the backs of everybody, I get to stare right at the face of the man and woman getting married. And I see the hope and the optimism that fills their hearts on that day, how sincerely they intend to keep that promise. And it's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. It's a day filled with new beginnings with unbounded hope, with a future that hasn't written itself out yet, and I just feed off it. I love that feeling of desire to have a great life, to do it right, to honor each other. And yet, the same couple, fast forward several years later, is sitting in the ashes of regret and brokenness. And how do we get from here to here? I read an interesting article Um, It's not necessarily on divorce, but the title of the article was Six Surprises That Every Premarital Counselor Should Cover. It was written by a guy named Dave Harvey, who's a teaching pastor at Summit Church down in Naples, Florida. And he wrote it for the Gospel Coalition website. And as I read it, I thought, this guy's onto something because he talks at least about six things that when people get married, surprise them. And not surprise them as if, like, wow, I had no idea. We have some idea, but there's a kind of knowing, and then there's a knowing, knowing. Like, when someone keeps going, oh, you got to go to this place. The food is amazing. You're like, okay, all right. I've tasted good chicken before. I'm sure it'll be great. And then you taste it, and your eyes open. You go, oh, I had no idea. I didn't know chicken could go to this level. You've now forever reset my chicken bar. And I think that's the kind of article he wrote is, we think we know what marriage is going to be like, and then we get into it, and it rocks us. It completely surprises us, even in areas where we prepared not to be surprised. So let me me quickly cover a couple of these surprises for you, okay? And we'll begin first by, by looking at this text, and then I'll dive into these six surprises. Here's what Jesus said about divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We're going to unpack that in just a bit. But here's how a couple often finds themselves in this place of a shattered relationship. The first surprise is just sinfulness. It's in marriage that you come to discover about yourself and this person you thought you knew and loved oh my goodness, I and they are way more sinful than we ever thought. I mean, I knew you had flaws, but I had no idea you were this bad. And I had no idea I'm this bad. Like the stuff I thought, oh, I'm ugly inside. So that's one surprise is we knew we were sinful, but in marriage it's exposed 
for you just how sinful you really can be. The other is conflict. We, you, maybe you fought a lot, but in marriage, we discover that conflict is way easier to get into. It's more frequent than we ever thought, and often it hurts more. It's far scarier than the fights we had while we are dating. Dating fights are annoying. Marriage fights are horrifying. They're scary. They scar us deeply. Another surprise is that change happens way slower than I ever thought it would. Think about some of the things you don't like about yourself, you wish were different, and how long it's taken you to try to change. Think about some of the things in your mate that you thought, oh, you know, don't worry about it. I'm good at dealing with people. I know they're not perfect, but give me about two years with this person. Don't worry. I haven't fixed. 20 years later, like, you're getting worse. How is that possible? Why are you changing so slowly? Why are we changing so slowly? Why does change happen at such a snail's pace? Another surprise is that physical intimacy You know what I'm talking about. It's nothing like we thought it was going to be. It's just different. We're shaped in our minds by all kinds of media images, and the reality turns out to be actually much deeper and richer, but also very different than what we were led to believe. I could go on more, but I think I've already shocked you guys enough last week, so I'll just say this. In-laws. You are leaving your family that you always knew, and you're joining with another family you've never known, and both of those are really painful and complex processes. To stop thinking of yourself as a brother or sister, a son or daughter, and start realizing I'm a husband or a wife, soon to be a father or mother, that's a whole different ballgame, and that, that creates so much tension in our lives. Plus, there's this family that does everything wrong. They put the kitchen garbage under the sink. Who does that? And they, they squeeze the toothpaste from the middle, and they, they, everything they do is the wrong way. It's not normal the way we did it. That's not easy to deal with. And I'm making light of it, but that's, there's real pain in this in-law issue, isn't there? And finally, forgiveness. I thought I was a very forgiving person, and I love what C.S. Lewis says. Everyone believes that forgiveness is a delightful idea until they have something to forgive. These are things that we thought we understood, but when we get married, the truth is brought out and we realize we're very different and marriage is very different than we ever thought it was going to be like. And because it's heavier and harder than we anticipated, it strains at our muscles. And for many people, they find they cannot bear the weight of this thing they thought was just going to be a roller coaster ride downhill on the happy train. Just shh. But I think for those of us who follow Jesus, there's a much deeper dynamic than these sociological or practical frameworks. I I think that underlying all of it, we get a window into why marriages fall apart by looking at the way that Adam and Eve's relationship was torn apart after they chose to eat that forbidden fruit. You know, God gave them one rule, one rule, and that's the one rule they decided to break. That shows you something about the human condition. It's, it's not like we need a thousand rules to give you just one rule. If God gives us one rule, we'll break that one rule. Because at the end, the heart of sin is that I choose to value my desires and what I want more than I desire, more than I value the desires of God or what's good for my friends and my loved ones. At the heart of sin is a choice to love myself more than I love anyone else. And that's something we all are familiar with. We do it every day. We make that choice day after day after day. And when Adam and Eve made that that choice to sin, immediately two things happened. One is they hid themselves away from God. And two, they began to blame each other for their problems. And I see this dynamic at work in so many relationships. It's first when... Life and marriage disappoint us. One of the things that curiously I see happening is the people who are going through a marital dispute begin to retreat away also from God. I'm not sure what God had to do with it, but it's almost like they're blaming him or something. They're saying, you know what, I don't even want it. And here's the way people hide from God. 
It's not that they hide in fear or shame necessarily, but they put a stone wall over their hearts. They harden themselves and they hide their hearts away from God. They stop listening to the Christian radio. They come to church already preparing themselves. I'm going to walk in there and I'm not going to give a crap about anything that's said. I'm just going to sit there and be, wait till the guy's done talking. I'm not going to let anyone in. Partly because when we're in pain and we know deep down inside we have contributed to that pain, we don't want anyone challenging us. We don't want anyone shining light where it doesn't belong. We just don't want to hear it. It's a lot easier to just be away. I'm going to be transparent and share a, a shameful story from my own life. A number of years ago when uh, we only had two kids, my wife went away on a trip. And I was really looking forward to that because I was going to, like, it's rare that you have the house to yourself. And I, I, ha- I was starting to develop this idea that the reason I can't get any of the stuff done that I care about is that my family always has demands on me. My kids or my wife always need something. So when they're all going to be gone, I'm like, I'm just me again for like 72 glorious hours. And I had these noble notions of the kind of person I'd be if I didn't have to serve all these other people. I had all these books I was going to read. I was going to work on some projects around the house that were kind of annoying, but I needed some time. And I was going to work out and all these things. And you know what I ended up doing? I ended up sleeping till 2 in the afternoon. I ended up eating garbage. And I went to the library. I was too cheap to go to the video stores. I went to the library and borrowed like six movies and just sat there and watched all six in a row. Now, I'll tell you, it was comfortable. I really enjoyed nobody messing with me. If, I, if my wife had been home during that fabulous display of low character, she would have said something in hour number two. She'd be like, uh, you need to get up now. Half the day is done. It was glorious at one level to have no one say anything to me at all. Just sleep till two. I'm wanna. I'm going to do it. By movie number three, my wife would be like, really, another one? But it was just me, and I was like, I'm watching three more after this, too. The thing about it, though, was at the end of the day, though I was comfortable and free of all those voices, I really didn't like myself. I learned something very true about who I really am, and I, wouldn't, I wasn't proud of that. I realized that nobody else was to blame, that somewhere deep in my heart is a very lazy, low-character man trapped in a diligent man's life. That's the truth about me. I learned it that day, and I realized that though it's comfortable pushing away everyone who wants to give me noise and hassle about everything, I like myself better when I'm at my best. I really like myself better when I'm productive, when I'm kind, when I'm generous, when I'm righteous. I really like who I see in the mirror much better when I'm more like Christ and less like Caveman Dave. You might be comfortable hiding away from God, but let me tell you, when we do that as Christians, we don't like the person we become. This bitter, cynical, defeated, frustrated, angry person. This person who has to wear a calloused, practiced, calloused heart that says, I don't care about you. I know you don't care about me. Let's just be honest about that and leave it where it is. I don't like that person. You don't like that person, and nobody likes that person. They also started playing the blame game. Now, that doesn't mean there's no blame to go around. In all brokenness, multiple parties contribute. But we're so fixated on the blameworthiness of others, we fail to stop in humility and quiet before God and say, what have I done to contribute to this? It's one of the most powerful questions we can ask when we're going through pain is what have I done? Sometimes it's nothing. This is just a trial you're going through. But quite often, if you are humble and quiet and still before God, he will say things to you that only God can say. He will show you there is something you have done. And he doesn't expose it in order to break you or defeat you, but to drive you to repair and repent. As soon as two people, in, the, in response to their brokenness, begin to push away from God and to push away from each other, it signals the beginning 
of the unraveling of that relationship. Now, in the midst of this, Jesus makes mention of when that finally culminates in the decision to end the marriage. And he mentions something called the certificate of divorce. And we have to explain a little bit about what that is. From the very first days that the people of Israel came to know God, they understood that marriage was something sacred. It wasn't something casual. Like, you wouldn't be surprised if some guy came up to you ladies and said, hey, you want to grab dinner some night? That's like, it's a big risk for the guy, but it's just a date. So you're like, "Eh, maybe, I don't know. But you'd be really surprised if some guy just came up to you and said, hey, so you want to get married and stuff? Like, just spend the rest of our lives together. That's, we all know instinctively marriage is not a game. It's one of the most serious decisions we ever make and that it's sacred and we don't enter into it lightly and we certainly don't break out of it lightly. It's a major event when a marriage ends. But God understood that people are frail. Their hearts are hard and so when really tough things happen in a marriage that they're meant to work through redemptively, Some people just cannot get to that place. And so as a concession to the hardness of people's hearts, God permitted through Moses a one condition for divorce, and that is in the case of adultery. That may be a little more complicated than that. The term translated sexual immorality is a fairly complex term. There's a lot of debate. I would suffice it to say it's sexual sin that breaks the marriage covenant. It's some form of sexual sin that causes the trust and the intimacy to be seemingly irreparably broken between two people. And because when that kind of thing happens, people find it very difficult to make room in their hearts again, though that is actually God's design and plan is to repair that, he gave them one concession and said, I permit divorce in this one case. Paul later expanded that to include if an unbelieving spouse abandons you or if there's any form of abuse. Aside from that, God has always expressed in Scripture that divorce is not his plan or design and that it is morally wrong. But in this one case, he said, there's a legally binding document you can give to a woman to set her free from the marriage and set you free from the marriage. It's called the certificate of divorce. Now, at the time of Jesus, there were two rabbis that lived just a little time before Jesus and formed two leading schools of thought with respect to Jewish thinking. One was the more conservative Shammai school of thought, and the other was the more liberal Hillel school of thought. And in bringing about, in discussing these two things, I'm not trying to make some political or theological statement about conservatives versus liberals. I think both voices have contributed greatly to the refinement of the church. But I will say this. In the case of divorce, these two schools of thought in Judaism debated furiously over what it meant. What were the justifiable grounds for divorce? Believe it or not, this was one of the hottest topics debated between these two groups. And the more conservative Shammai school held that the only allowable divorce is in the case of adultery or unfaithfulness where the one, one partner is deeply wronged by the infidelity of the other. But the more liberal Hillel school of thought wanted to broaden the terms of allowable divorce. And by the time they were done, you know how it is. It's like, it's like when this one person at the hair cuttery cuts my hair, she gets going and I don't know what it is about my head, but once she starts cutting, she can't stop. It's like addictive. And by the time she's done, there's like nothing left. Like at some point, you got to decide to stop cutting. She keeps cutting. And, oh, it's not even. She evens out the other side. That's not. And by the time she's done, it's, it's like that. When you start cutting, it's hard to stop cutting. And when they were, when all was said and done, the Hillel school of Judaism basically held that any time a husband is in any way not happy in his marriage, He has justifiable grounds for divorce, including if she burned his dinner or offended him by just being less attractive than the other girl he just met. I mean, this is written in the law books. It says, I have found one prettier than you. It no longer blesses my heart to come home to your face when I could actually see her face. And that was legally justified and they thought morally justified grounds for divorce. That was the world into which Jesus delivers these strong words in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Basically, what I'm trying to say is, in the days of Jesus, there was a great permissive attitude regarding divorce. That yes, we, everybody acknowledged as today, it's a sad ending to a sad story. Sometimes it's a necessary ending, but it's really just a sociological or legal issue. It's not moral at all. And, and that's what happened in the days of Jesus is that the moral weight of divorce, its sacredness before God was stripped away and it just became a practical solution to a real world problem that grieves people for a season and they move on. I think we can all relate to that in our culture because as of 2010, New York became the final state in the U.S. to accept this idea of no-fault divorce. It's a very complicated issue. There are arguments, strong arguments on both sides, but I think it's one of the worst things that happened to marriage in America is this idea of no-fault divorce that says in the past... Up until the 70s, it was required that if you wanted out of a marriage, even a secular society had the sense to say, let's not allow marriage to become a frivolous thing. Because it's one of the the things that holds society together. So if you wanted out of a marriage, knowing that you walked right into it voluntarily, they said you have to show wrongdoing on the part of your spouse. That you can't just walk out of marriage for no reason because you changed your mind. There's got to be a reason. And that makes sense to us because even with a car, that's a sacred contract, right? Or a house. You can't buy a house and then like a year later go, we don't like it anymore. We want to return it. You can't do that. And if people take car purchases and house purchases that seriously, society understood that marriage is that kind of contract. You don't just dissolve it because you changed your mind. And so they made a burden of proof that you have to show some wrongdoing that justifies exiting the marriage. But people began to realize that's creating all kinds of complications and it's creating a lot of lying in court. People are lying their butts off to make up some kind of trumped up charge. I can't even use that. Some, some sort of like artificially inflated charges in order to prove wrongdoing and get out of their marriage. In some ways it was creating more damage than, than good and so no fault Divorce was instituted. Now every state accepts that. So the prevailing attitude in our culture regarding divorce is, it's sad, but sometimes necessary. It's, it's not the end of the world. It's just a thing people do. Many young people stand at the altar knowing, tucked away in the back of their minds, ah, I still have a few lingering doubts, but there's always that escape hatch. This casual attitude about divorce was, was revealed when Matthew 19, a group of Pharisees who represented the more conservative school thought and wanted to trap Jesus, basically cornered him and said, hey, so what do you think about this issue of divorce? Where do you, where do you land on this issue? Anyone who, it, it's been said, right, that by some today that a man can divorce his wife for, listen to this translation, any and every reason. I mean, if you can be divorced just because you burned the dude's dinner, there's no rules. All bets are off. And the Pharisees were rightly disturbed by this trend in their society and wanted to see where Jesus fell. And they were shocked when he agreed firmly with them and then took it a step further than they did. He said, oh, yeah, no, that's messed up. That's not an okay thing in God's eyes. It grieves him that our society has come to this. And he affirms That's not God's design for marriage. When you could just hand a legal document to somebody and say that we're done, take this, and you and I are are finished. We no longer belong to each other. That reveals a fundamental view of marriage that we call the contractual view of marriage. It views marriage as a contract, and I think this is the way the vast majority of people in America think about marriage, even in the church. And pay attention to me. If you, if you zone out or, or get distracted on any other part, listen to this. If you have a contractual view of marriage, it's doomed. It's doomed. You cannot enter marriage as a contract, which is a mutually binding agreement that I will do my part and you will do your part. And if either of us fail to hold up our end of the deal, it's over. That's how every contract in the world works. I pay you, you give me something, and if we both don't honor our part of it, I don't have to stay in it. 
Why should I? It's not fair. And I'm telling you that I think the vast majority of people, even in the church, see marriage in this, through this lens. I know this because when I hear the grievances, it's always, well, I've been trying. How much longer do I have to put up with this? It's not fair that I should have to bear this pain. I don't like the way I feel. I'm not happy anymore. And it's all because they're not doing their part. I've done everything a thousand percent. They've done nothing that they're supposed to. And I can't put up with it anymore. They have broken their vows over and over So I feel the freedom to be released from my vows. The contractual view of marriage says that a marriage will only hold together as long as both people fully honor their duty and obligation in that marriage. What kind of hope does that give us when we know that everyone who gets married is a broken, flawed, selfish, sinful human being? Can I just get a a little... Straw poll. Married people in the room, how many of you have unfailingly into a thousand percent to the best of your human ability honored your wedding vows in spirit and in deed every day of your marriage thus far? Don't raise your hand unless you got married five minutes ago. Like I just pronounced your husband and wife. You haven't had five minutes to screw it up. Nobody raised their hand. That's insane. Because we know for all the bad that others have done, we've done our fair share to destroy this thing. A contractual view of marriage is doomed from the start because both people are guaranteed to fail in upholding their side of the contract. And if that's the way you think about marriage, marriage can't work. In response to the Pharisees' question, which exposed that the, the vast majority of society saw it as a contract, a contract that could be terminated, Jesus responded with something rooted in creation. And in the authority of God, he said, haven't you read that in the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And here's the verse we we just romantically throw in 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 every wedding, not realizing it's it comes in the middle of a passage about divorce. I say this at every... Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Here's what he's saying. That marriage is not a contract held together by our faithfulness, but it's a covenant held together by the authority of God before whom we make these promises to one another. That when we get married, we're not just making some contractual promises to another human being, but we're ultimately making a promise to God and leaning on his authority and on his help that though my partner fail to uphold their side of this agreement, I will nonetheless stay steadfast and committed to uphold mine. That's the way covenant works. Covenant is not exactly like a contract In God's eyes, a covenant is based on the promise you make to yourself, to God, and to the world around you, irrespective of the choices that others make in that same transaction. What Jesus is basically saying is that marriage love, marriage covenant, points us to the covenant that God has with those people who belong to him. If you are a Christian, God has made a covenant with you that is reflected in the covenant of marriage. Put another way, when we understand the way God loves us, we understand how we're supposed to love other people. If you don't understand how God has loved us, your love for others is a pantomime. It's a mimicry of what you think love is supposed to look like, but the Bible teaches us that God himself is love. It's, he's the essence of love. He's what makes love what it is. And if we don't understand covenant love, all our claims and attempts to love others will fail because it will fall short time and time again. I love the way theologian Professor Scott McKnight has helped unpack this issue. I was really helped this week by considering his thought on this issue. And one of the things he says is God's covenant love 
can be framed in terms of three prepositions. I know that sounds really boring and schoolish, but listen, here's how he says it. God loves us this way. He is with us, meaning he's not a God who's far away, but he's very near, engaged, present with us, and he is for us. He's not up there with arms folded, seeing how high we can jump. He's cheering us on. He wants us to succeed. He is an advocate of ours, and he is with us the long haul until we are fully redeemed. That is a work that will not be completed until we are in heaven, but throughout the course of our lives, God remains faithful despite our many failings to keep working at transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. He wants to bring out of us the things that are beautiful in his Son. And he works tirelessly and with a lifelong commitment and not from a distance. He does it with us and he does it for us. That's God's covenant love. I think it's a beautiful way of understanding what love for anybody should look like. And so Professor McKnight was able to reframe this and say marital covenant love should also look that way. It is to be fully present with our mate. That means physically and emotionally. We don't withdraw. We don't disappear for long periods. We are together often and deeply. And that we are for our mate, meaning I don't feel like my, my mate is my chief critic or my chief auditor. Isn't that the way it sometimes feels in marriage? Like I don't have anyone who's for me. I just have someone who's like watching. <laughs> I caught you again. There it is again. There it is again. There it is again. And it's like after a while, you go, you're killing my soul. Nobody needs an auditor to point out every failing. What we all need is an advocate because we know we stink. We know we're a mess. We know we're a work in progress. We don't want to stay like this. But man, do we need an advocate who cheers us on, who is actually for us and not just the one first in line to point out when we failed. And that in married, lo- married love, married covenant love, we are to be together the whole distance, even as God is. Despite numerous failings, we go the distance, we finish the movie, we sit through all the stingers at the end of the credits, we leave when the usher comes in to clean up the popcorn. That's how late we stay in the show. Because if you don't stay that long, you miss something. The movie is not designed to be 30 minutes. It's designed to be 2 hours and 20 minutes. From the previews all the way to the end. You walk out, you miss some of the best parts. The covenant of marriage is meant to reflect the way God loves us. So that in marriage, what we say to one another is, I will always be with you. I will never make you feel like you're just looking at me from across the room hoping I get my stuff together. I always feel like you're with me and that you are for me. God knows everyone else in the world has an opinion about me, has judged me from a long distance. I can't have my marriage partner do the same. What I need from you as my marriage partner is an advocate who is near to me, who is on my side, cheering me on, backing me up. If I don't have that, if I can't have that, I feel totally lost. That doesn't mean it's all your fault. But it sure helps when God gives me a person to share the journey and they actually help me on that journey. And here's the important part. We stay rooted in that promise through thick and thin, until the end. We're together until we see Christ formed, despite the the fact that everyone we love will fail us eventually. And you know what the truth is? We deeply count on God loving us that way, don't we? The reason I'm still in church, the reason you're still in church, the reason you still pray when you screw up, is because God loves us with a covenant love, not a contractual love. Wouldn't it be horrifying if God actually spoke back to you every time you prayed in an audible voice and finally said, really? Again with the porn thing? I don't want to hear it anymore. You keep saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How sorry could you be? It's like every day, three times a day. How sorry could you really be? You have only a few things you got to watch out for, and you don't watch out for any of them. I'm sorry. 
but it's a no for me. You don't want to hear that on a reality competition, do you? It's a no for me. <laughs> what you want to hear is, you're going to Hollywood. Paul reveals in Romans that it's God's kindness that elicits from us a confident repentance. We repent because we're confident that God in the midst of our brokenness, faced with our failings and weakness, will never turn us away. His covenant love is a lifelong love. It is with us all the way to the end, to the completion of Christ being formed in us. He doesn't give up on us even when we give up on ourselves. He loves us this way and we count on that. And that's an illustration of how marriage is supposed to be. I know I'm going to screw up, and sometimes not just in small ways, like I forgot to pick up the bread at the store on the way home. Sometimes we'll screw up in ways that are so grievous, we're not sure how anyone would ever forgive us. And yet in marriage, in that one single relationship in your earthly experience, you are meant to have someone else on the earth who models for you the covenant gospel love of Jesus Christ. That no matter how often you screw up, even in the same thing, this God who loves us with covenant love will never turn us away. There will never be an expiration date on his grace and mercy. It's called steadfast, everlasting love in Scripture. And because of it, we're able, even in our lowest moments, to cry out to God, confident that he will have us back. Look at this beautiful heart of remorse and crying out for rescue and redemption in the heart of David after he had sinned so horribly. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me. Day and night. We can't say words like that unless we're confident that the person who hears them will not turn us away. Will not say to us, that's it. That's one too many times. I can't do this anymore. I'm out. He will never say that to us. This is a love that lasts to the end. And that's the nature of covenant love in marriage. Much harder for us to do than it is for God to do. But he, he loves us this way so that we're not left without example or inspiration. We receive this kind of love from God all the time. And so he invites us, love each other this way. Especially when your partner has failed. I think most wives can see behind them because they're, they're always rolling their eyes. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to be able to see behind you like, oh, God, this fool that I done married, is, he did it again. He's like a trained monkey, like a poorly trained monkey. How many times? And there are things that I do poorly or wrongly at home. I'm just like amazed that my wife is still around. She, she rolls her eyes. I, that's just what it is to be married, to be human, to, to say, look, I, I know I'm going to screw up again. I'm not saying I plan to. I just know that it's going to happen because I am a mess. I'm trying to become more like Christ. God is trying to make me more like Christ. I desperately want that to happen. But I'm going to tell you right now, full disclosure, I'm not going to make it this side of heaven. I will be a work in progress till I'm dead. And here's the thing about marriage is I've invited you to stand next to me all the way till that happens. Think about your marriage vows and what you said that day. We didn't say it till annoyance do us part, till your horrible attitude, till your toxic language. And No, we said till I die or you die. That's when this ends. This is once for all life. And because God loves us with covenant love, he says to us, don't play the role of chief auditor or judge over your mate. Play the role of lover, of one who is with, who is for, and who is until the very end. That's what covenant love looks like. 
And when there's a breakdown at any of those levels, the relationship begins to fall apart. Let me close with a few words of practical response to different groups of people in this room. See, marriage is meant to be the primary earthly relationship in which the gospel is worked out and in which God shapes us into the image, the resemblance of his son. All the beautiful things about Jesus God wants to bring out of us, and the main relationship he does that in is marriage. It's one of the greatest arguments in favor of marriage is that it's in that lifelong relationship that God does some of his greatest work shaping you into the resemblance of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Because we are so hard-hearted and so stubborn, that's a work that will, will span an entire lifetime. It's not an overnight project. It's like that kind of project that never ends. And because of it, God calls us into a lifelong commitment, a covenant of marriage, because if it takes an entire lifetime to shape you, then it's going to take an entire lifetime to join together in watching that happen. He intends to use your spouse as his primary chisel to shape you into Christ's image. And it's nice when that chisel carves out beauty and not shatters you into pieces. So I want to say clearly that divorce is wrong. And divorce is wrong because it's a choice to break a covenant made before God and it short circuits that process, that lifelong plan of redeeming you through this lifelong covenant relationship. That when you stood at an altar, you made a promise to God and God made a promise back to you, I will use this person in your life for the rest of your life or theirs to shape you into the image of my son. I will use them in ways I won't use anybody else in this world. But you've got to give me a lifetime to do it. That's the bargain. And divorce is wrong because it short-circuits that process. And it signals the death of hope. It signals the death of faith and confidence, not just in ourselves, but ultimately even in God. Now understand that I'm fully acknowledging that there are cases in which divorce is permissible and justified. The intent of Jesus and my intent in this sermon is not to find justifiable grounds for divorce, but to elevate the high status of the covenant of marriage to show that marriage is meant not only to be a contract, but to reflect the beautiful way in which God loves his people. Covenant matters. And that's what marriage is. So I want to address different groups of people in this room very quickly as I close. If you find that today you are in a struggling marriage, that when you think about your spouse, the first gut feeling that you experience right now is not warmth and fuzziness, but pain, agitation, hurt, maybe even anger. I want you to know that nonetheless, Jesus still affirms and calls you to fully honor the covenant you made on your wedding day. I know that when you're in pain and the relationship is hard, that feels like an oppressive thing to say or to hear. I I truly understand that. It hasn't always been easy for me or Jeannie to fully honor our covenant vows. I know some of you have been taken to much farther places than we have, but I'm trying to say to you, I understand that marriage is challenging for everybody. But I'm here to tell you that no matter how deep your pain and frustration, the call of God clearly and unapologetically is, honor your covenant vows. We might think of that as an oppressive curse, but it's actually a blessing. Because what he says is it's in that relationship that I'm going to show you the full extent of my power. And if you bail and you give up hope, Where will you regain that hope? It will become a habit of yours to bail when you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But what God says to us is that light is there and it's coming. I promise you I will get you there. But you've got to stay with me on this train until it's over. That's the promise of God. And if you're struggling, I want to simply ask you to go back to those vows 
which you said not symbolically, but from the depths of your heart on your wedding day. Think about the things you said you would do in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health, when he's a jerk and when he's a nice guy. When she's warm towards me or when she's an ice queen. Either way, I promised I would be there with you until death separates us from one another. Remember the vows you made and ask God for the grace and strength to reaffirm them. Establish for yourself right now that divorce for the follower of Jesus is not an option except in the narrowest of cases. And even then, Jesus' preference will be to redeem and repair that that relationship. No matter how ridiculously difficult that may seem, that's his design, that's his plan. I know those aren't comforting words if you're in pain, but I can't think of more loving words to offer you than the truth that you will be grateful as you watch God's power restore a broken marriage rather than to walk away from it. In no way does what I just said minimize how painful it is to be in marital conflict. To those who have friends who are in a struggling marriage, maybe it's not your marriage, but you keep getting calls in the middle of the night from a friend who's like, Oh my gosh, here we go again. It's erupted in their house. Remember that your calling as a friend and as a Christ follower is always to advocate for their marriage covenant. It's not loving and it's not loyal to add fuel to the fire of bitterness and anger and conflict. Some people think that to be a true friend is go, girl, he did what? Uh, kick that boy to the curb. Get rid of that loser. He's, girl, you could do so much better. Get rid of him. Uh Uh-uh, no, he did Come on, that's not loving, that's not loyal. That's taking someone who's deeply disappointed and grieved and you're just kicking them while they're down saying, yeah, that's right, your life is a mess, you married a loser. It's not loving to do that. It may seem like what they want to hear, but it's not what they want to hear. Nobody wants to hear that their marriage is over, that there's no hope for them, that they made a terrible decision. What they want to hear, despite what they're saying to you, is there's hope for us. Because one day, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, they stood at an altar and made a pledge to this person because they loved them. And it deeply grieves them that they're not in that place anymore, but they wish somewhere deep, through all the fog of hopelessness, that they could get back to that place. And I want to remind you that if you're a friend, a true friend, you will not just tell people what they want to hear. You will tell people the truth and what they really need to hear. And our calling always is to advocate for the covenant, to remind people of the promise they made and say, God will help you get there, and we will stand next to you all the way through. I especially want to give a shout-out to anybody who served as a bridesmaid or a groomsman at a wedding. Can you just raise your hand if you ever stood at a wedding for someone else? Raise them high. Okay. Now, in our culture today, that's usually like a big popularity or, or closeness pageant. These are the people that are like the closest to me. And so we stand we're like, yeah, all the rest of you kind of know these guys. We know them. All right. And that's what we think that's all about is I'm standing here. I'm one of the closest friends this dude has. Let me tell you another perspective on that. If you're a bridesmaid or a groomsman, it's your calling above all others to speak up when you see trouble in that marriage. Because what they've said is, you are the people we trust the most, we love the most dearly. You are the inner circle of our life. If you can't speak to them, who can? I'll just say it simply like this. If you stood at their wedding, you've got to stand for their marriage. Amen? If you stood at their wedding, you have to stand for their marriage. You've got to fight with them and for them not against them. Never take sides. Take God's side and take the side of the family that could be shattered. Take that side. To those who have friends who are divorced, I simply say to you, overcome your judgment and your discomfort because divorce leaves a person devastated and that person needs grace and mercy above all else. Don't let your discomfort or your disdain 
rule the day. Bring that before God, ask him to deal with you so that what's left is love and grace for a person who's made a terrible choice, who suffered a terrible loss, who's going to have a lot of repair work in the days ahead and needs someone to stand with them, not against them. And finally, to those who are divorced. I have no doubt that this was not an easy message to hear and that probably it raised more questions than it answered. That it's created a a lot of emotion in you and that probably when you heard the sermon, you heard it through a very, very narrow lens because this is a real experience for you. Maybe you heard it waiting to hear a particular thing rather than hearing what was said. And so I want to invite you first to say, if this message stirred up things and you're not done when I'm done talking, when you're not done dealing with this, I invite you to reach out to me or one of the other leaders at this, ch- at this church and just say, I have some things I want to get straight. I have some questions that need answering. I want to talk to someone about this. I invite you wholeheartedly, please do that. Reach out to us. Don't just be troubled in isolation. But if you are divorced, I want to invite you to sit quietly and humbly before Jesus in what he says to you this morning from this text. I know that divorce and the end of a marriage stirs a lot, are about a lot of strong emotion, and the deepest human instinct is to seal it with cement, never open it again, say, I've moved on, that's done. It's a finished work. But maybe what the Holy Spirit will do in your life today is to say, I'm not quite finished leading you through the process of repentance and reflection and repair. It's still an open sore in your heart, and Jesus is inviting you to sit quietly and humbly in front of him in the light of the truth that he just said and say, God, what do you want from me? I need you. If you have something to say to me, please say it, but say it gently and in a way that I can respond to you. And I want you to remember that if you're divorced, There is life after divorce. There is a future for you. It's not the end of your life. God's business is to redeem and restore people. That's his whole thing. But I want to also caution you, don't be in a rush to move forward. Don't be in a rush to just move on and say, okay, I just want to leave it behind me because divorce is not a small life event. It hollows you out. And God needs to fill some things back in that take a while. So don't be in a rush. Take your time. Reflect deeply. Heal thoroughly. Before all else, restore your relationship with God to a place where it gives you life again. Where you stop being bitter and angry and cynical. And you feel that your heart has become soft soil once again. That's your greatest priority. It's not to find love again. It's to find that place with God where he can speak to you heart to heart and restore you from the depths. And I want to caution you, listen to the voices of the people who love you. Don't shut out the voices that say, hey, it's too soon. Take it easy. Hit the brakes a little bit. Stop trying to move on so quickly. You don't find healing through distraction. You find healing straight through the pathway of the cross of Jesus Christ. And until he's finished doing some of that work with you, it's dangerous to move on. That doesn't mean give up hope of ever loving again, but just be cautious and don't shut out the voices around you who care deeply about you. Nobody's trying to, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most are not trying to judge you or rob you of your joy. They're just saying, be careful and be wise. Because we want what's best for you down the road. I want to invite the praise team to come forward and uh, just end this way. Maybe for some of you, marriage and divorce all seems like a million years away. It just seems way down in your distant future. I would simply ask that God, you, would, you would pray, God, prepare me so that when that becomes a reality for me, when it's my turn to stand at an altar, you will help me walk into it 
with my eyes and my heart wide open. But if you find that you are one of those groups and this issue of divorce has touched your life, ask Him for the grace to respond the right way. Maybe you've protected yourself from the the multitude of voices that are trying to shout at you, but don't shout out the voice of God. He's the one voice you need to let back in. If you're hurting in your marriage, the voice of your spouse or your parents or your friends or your pastor are just nails on a chalkboard right now. And you just don't want to hear it. That's okay. Don't shut out the voice of God. He's still the one who saved you. He's still the one who loves you more than anyone else. Don't shut him up. Open your heart to him. Let him say the things nobody else can. He wants to speak to you this morning. Why don't we just bow our heads just for a moment and just bring him our hearts where we are right now. And if you feel you need to pray for someone else in your life that you love, cry out to God on their behalf now. We'll just spend a couple minutes praying and then we'll close our service with a song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.